My name is John. If I haven't had the pleasure and opportunity to meet with you, I'm excited to be with you this morning, especially in this context as we continue our current sermon series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a, a series that we've entitled God's Plan for God's People. If you would, please grab your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 15 through 20 this morning. And when you're there, and if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 5. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we ask, God, that You would soften our hearts. Soften our, the calluses that may have built up due to disobedience or disbelief. Help us to have a greater understanding of who You are and, and how to live worthy of the calling, worthy of the Gospel. And I pray, Lord, that You would stir in us a greater love for You, a greater love for Jesus, and a greater urgency for the mission in which You've called us to. God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. God, You are our rock and our Redeemer. You alone deserve our praise and our attention, and we glorify You. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've always dreamed about one day hiking uh, the famous John Muir Trail in California. And part of that dream is that while I hiked this trail, I would fly fish the various alpine lakes along the trail. Now, if you're not familiar with this trail, it, it begins at the summit of Mount Whitney, which just so happens to be the highest point of elevation in the United States. And the trail is 221 miles long through the beautiful but dangerous and strenuous Sierra Mountains, and the trail ends in the beautiful valley of Yosemite National Park. At home, I have books that are filled with pictures of the trail taken by the famous photographer Ansel Adams, and I have books that contain stories and, and, um, of those who have braved this difficult journey. And honestly, it sounds awesome. It sounds like an adventure of the life of a lifetime. Now, I don't want you to get a false idea about me, okay? Hiking the John Muir Trail would be absolutely the, the greatest adventure I've ever done. It's far greater than anything I've ever accomplished physically. I, I'll be honest, I struggled to hike along the, the trails at Mount Charleston. So this uh, dream is more of a romantic fantasy than it is actually a plan. So with this in mind, if I were to take this trip it would require an extensive season of preparation. It would take me months of intentional training in order to develop the endurance that such a trail would demand. 
It would take weeks of research and and planning. I would need to know the permits I I would need to buy. I would need to know what gear and what food I would need. I would have to plan out each day's hike and how many miles I would venture each day. I would have to figure out how to deal with bears and, and bugs and how to purify water. I would have to know what to do in case of an emergency. You see, the hike itself is dangerous. There's dangerous animals steep rocky cliffs that you can fall off of, and uncertainty and the severity of the elements. The planning and the preparation and the training for such an adventure would be significant. It would be absolutely necessary. In fact, it would be the height of foolishness to attempt to hike this John Muir Trail without first diligently prepping and preparing. It would not be wise. Think about it. What if my wife Stacy said to me, John, I would like to go for a hike. And I said, sure. What about a 221-mile hike through the strenuous Sierra Mountains? Sounds good. I'll pack a couple of sandwiches and we'll hit the trail. You see, that would be foolishness. We would be de- doomed for failure. And yet, it would be just as foolish and pathetic if I were to spend the months and months planning and prepping and, and taking wilderness classes and buying all the gear and planning out every step, but yet never go. I simply would stay at home with my gear and my bags and the, the food and my training and flip through my books and stare at the pictures of the trail and actually never go and hike the trail. See, the dangerous journey, the hiking, uh, like hiking the John Muir Trail, requires the wisdom of careful and dil- diligent planning, and yet the diligent planning and preparing calls and demands for the journey itself. And I share this illustration because it helps us to see and understand what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians. Paul has been equipping and he's been preparing us and training us for the significant and dangerous and epic journey called the Christian life. And he's been preparing us and training us with a solid foundation of doctrine. We have seen and and we have been taught throughout our series in this book the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation. We have discussed the doctrine of the church and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the entire first three chapters of this book has been an intensive in which we have been equipped and trained and prepared to live as a follower of Jesus. See, the Christian journey, it requires... Diligent planning. We can't just set out haphazardly on such an expedition, for it would not be wise. Yet it's also clear that you and I have been equipped not only to sit around and talk about doctrine and to discuss the things of God, but to walk in love and walk in light as we discussed last Sunday and this morning to walk in wisdom. Consider how walking is Paul's main metaphor for the Christian life throughout the chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. Paul has equipped us with the rich doctrines of God in chapters 1 through 3, and then he begins in Ephesians chapter 4 by saying in verse 1, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Then again in verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then Paul, he then has provided for us an alternative way to walk. An alternative way to live. And in Ephesians 5, he instructs us to be imitators of God. To walk in love. To walk in light. And now in verse 15, he says that we are to pay careful attention to how we walk. You see, you and I as Christians, it's not enough to only think or to know or to affirm the truth. 
but rather we are equipped with the truth so that we can go out and walk the walk. We are to walk the journey of a faithful Christian life that is distinct, that is separate, that is set apart from the world. But let's be real. You and I, we live in a time and space, we live in a culture and a society that is, that is evil and a world that is full of deception and duplicity and moral pitfalls. So tell me, how can you and I walk wisely? How can we walk carefully in a world that is filled with danger and deception? Well, from our text this morning, we're going to see that because we are God's dearly loved children, we can walk in wisdom by making the most of our time. We can walk in wisdom by understanding what the Lord's will for our life is. And we can walk in wisdom by being filled by the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 5, and let's first consider Paul's instruction to walk in wisdom. Verse 15 says, pay careful attention then how to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. If you're a Christian, understand that you were saved through the sacrifice of Jesus, and you were adopted by God as His dearly loved children, and you were filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the same way that you were called to walk in love, as we discussed last week, and walk in light, you are also called to walk in wisdom. You are called to no longer be defined by the foolishness of the world in which we live. In other words, we are to live like the people that we are. We are to live without the identity that you and I received when Christ saved us. We are to grow in what we have already been given. We are to grow practically in what we already possess positionally. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. You see, at salvation, every believer was made wise in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, it is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. You see, in Christ, God has miraculously made us righteous, sanctified, redeemed, and wise. Because you are in Christ, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ are also hidden in you. The moment that you were saved, you became a storehouse of God's wisdom. In fact, just as it's impossible for salvation to be apart from the righteousness of Christ, it is also impossible for salvation to be apart from the wisdom of Christ. See, a new believer begins his or her new life in Christ with all the wisdom necessary to follow Christ. However, we are to not stop there, but we are to be intentional to be continually growing in our knowledge of God and our wisdom so that we could become more mature, so that we could be more faithful, and so that we can be more productive in our service to the kingdom of God and to the church. Now, the question is begging to be asked, how? How do we grow in wisdom? Well, the first way is we pray for wisdom. We ask God to make us wise. Consider how James, who was speaking to believers, said in James chapter 1, verse 5, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. The author of Proverbs gives us another way that we can grow in our wisdom. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says, The one... The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. 
In other words, walking and growing in wisdom, it takes intention. You must be purposeful, which is why Paul says, look, you are to be careful how you walk, not as uh, the unwise, but as wise. You are to be careful. One of the greatest dangers to Christian living is the pitfall of complacency. And the complacency usually comes as a package deal when you experience a period of success. A period of pleasant circumstances. In fact, this may be why the American church is, is, is weak. And why churches in places like Iran and, and China are growing and flourishing rapidly. Because it's really difficult to become complacent when you are being persecuted for your faith. A.W. Tozer once said that complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. And this is why Jesus urged His disciples. He says, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paying attention, staying awake, being watchful involves being alert to your own weaknesses. Knowing and being self-aware in which you are prone to, to give in to temptation. Being alert to your own weaknesses. Being alert to the ensnaring schemes of the devil. You see, as Christians, we have been awakened to the danger of the darkness and we are to live accordingly. We are to give rigorous, wise examination To our mind, to our heart, and to our behavior. Because we know that the darkness well has a way of sneaking up on us. Therefore, we are to live carefully, Paul says in verse 15. Not as the unwise, but as the wise people that we are now. To no longer live in the the wisdom of the world. the, The foolishness that once described us before we met Christ. But to live according to the wisdom that defines our new identity in Christ. Now Paul, he proceeds to give us a recipe. A recipe for wisdom. And and in this recipe, he includes three ingredients. And the first one is walking in wisdom includes seizing the day. Walking in wisdom includes seizing the day. Verse 16. He says, make the most of time because the days are evil. Underline or circle this, or make note of this word time. It's helpful to understand that in the original language, time, uh, in the Greek language, there's, there's two words for time. And the word used in verse 16 implies and speaks to a specific moment of time rather than an a extended period of time. And so Paul, he's talking about this in this moment. In other words, Paul is saying, seize this moment. Seize the day. Don't let this opportunity pass you up. Do not, don't let this go by. Take advantage of every moment that God provides you with. I don't have to tell you that much like the Ephesians, we too live in days that could be defined as evil. Therefore, it matters how we live. We must be intentional. It matters how we live as Christians. We should be intentional making the most of our lives. And Paul here is essentially calling you and he's calling me to identify the things in our lives that waste time. And we are to prioritize our lives accordingly so that we can redeem the time, both for our good and for God's glory. Now, it doesn't require much effort to waste time living in the culture and society that we live in today. I hope I'm not the only one that cringes when my iPhone gives me the report of the screen time for the week that I had 
um, from scrolling through social media, watching guitar videos on YouTube, and binge-watching The Office, I can waste time like, like a boss, all right? But what about you? What is it for you? What's crazy is when, when I meet people, when I meet with people, they share with me how, how extremely busy they are. And this busyness, it prevents them from attending Sunday service. This busyness prevents them from reading their Bible, from, from doing family devotions. Men tell me I'm too busy to read the Bible with my kids and to pray with my wife. I'm too busy to attend small group. I'm too busy to, to serve in the church. And I'm too busy to pray. But when we break down our days and how we spend our time, it's usually not a busyness issue, but a priority issue. It's a lack of diligence issue. So with this in mind, I want to challenge you. Take inventory of how you spend your time. And then be intentional to redeem that time. The time you once wasted. Now, I'm not saying that you can't rest. We, it is imperative. We must be able to take time to rest. But what I'm saying is in which we have prioritized our day with things that are foolish and pointless to the point that it prevents us from living the life God has called us to live. So what are, what are you wasting your time on? If it's your phone or binge-watching Netflix, whatever it is, Take inventory of that and replace it with something that is of eternal significance. Now, why is this important? Why is Paul instructing us this? Why is he saying to, to make sure we don't waste time? Well, it's because we live in evil days. And the unholy trinity of the world, our flesh, and the devil are united in seeking the downfall and the demise of every believer. Consider the fact that it was when King David was not where he was supposed to be. It was when he was idly walking around the roof of his palace when he saw Bathsheba and well, the rest is history. Brothers and sisters, you need to be aware that we have an adversary. And that adversary is like a prowling lion and he's determined to devour us. And so that is why Paul says, be careful how you walk. Be intentional on how you spend your time. You see, as Christians, it's imperative that we make the most of our time, not only because we don't want to waste our lives, but so that we avoid foolishness, so that we might avoid sin, so that we would continue to grow in wisdom and continue to grow in godliness. Friends, we must be passionate about shining the light of Christ in this dark world while we still have breath to do so. For one day, we will stand before our King face-to-face, and if we are intent in making the most of our time in that moment that we stand before Him, we will be able to stand there without regret. You see, walking with wisdom means taking full advantage of every opportunity that comes your way as a follower of Jesus. It's not enough for you to simply seclude yourself and to avoid evil, but you have to be intentional to use the gifts of grace that God has given you. As we learn in chapter 4, the gifts that He's given you to advance His kingdom, to, to build up one another in the body of, of Christ. It speaks to the truth that we are to live for God. We are to live for His church rather than living for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and now we are to redeem time for Him. We are to make the most of every opportunity. We are to seize the day so that His name will be glorified and lost people will hear and receive the Gospel. So walking in wisdom includes seizing the day. And walking in wisdom includes, number two, 
living like Jesus. Walking in wisdom includes living like Jesus. Verse 17 through 18 says, So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. Instead of living foolishly, unthinkingly, and perhaps selfishly, we are called to live with understanding, particularly the understanding of what God's will is for our lives. You see, the life of faith is a thoughtful life. It's a life that, makes, that seeks to make sense of who God is and who God has called us to be and how God has called us to live. Usually when people talk about God's will, it's in a context of, is it God's will for me to buy this house? Or if it, is it God's will for me to change my career? Or is it God's will for me to have kids? And all of these things, yes, we should seek after the Lord's guidance. That is important. But this is not what Paul is saying in our text here. Rather, Paul is pointing us to God's revealed will in Scripture. The will that He has for you and I that He has already spoken to us in His Word. He's pointing us to what God has called each one of us to pursue as followers of Jesus and what to avoid as followers of Jesus. In short, understanding what God's will is means that we are to belong to Him first and foremost. We are to belong to Him through Christ Jesus. His first and primary will for our lives is that we would be saved and we would be brought into the family of God and the kingdom of God and then that we would pattern our lives after Jesus. That we would live like Jesus. See, the will of the Lord for your life is that you would live carefully and cautiously. The will of the Lord for your life is that you would match your life, how you live your life, with the teachings of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, God's ultimate will for your life is that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. For God desires a holy people that will reflect His holy light. And the only way that you grow in Christ's likeness is to follow God's instructions regarding how we are to think and how we are to live. Now, there may be many who get stuck into believing that the Christian life is essentially either about right behavior or right thinking. In fact, entire denominations exist in both of these categories, right thinking and right behavior. But God's will for your life as revealed in Scripture is much more than simply right thinking and right behavior. You see, God's Word is the means by which God makes Himself known to us. Scripture reveals to our hearts the reality of who God is so that we might live in relationship with Him. And Paul's aim in this verse is to encourage us to study the Scriptures so that we might know God, not simply know about God. So that we might be saved. So that we might pursue a life that loves Jesus and lives like Jesus and is purposeful about leading others to Jesus. Because when we do, when we do, God will ultimately be glorified. Now it's not surprising that as Paul instructs us to understand what the Lord's will is, he finds it absolutely necessary to pause and say it's never God's will for a Christian to be drunk. Now understand, Scripture's not condemning the drinking of alcohol. But Scripture does condemn the drinking of alcohol in excess. For it's a sin to be drunk. It's a sin to be high. It's a sin to be wasted. Consider how both the Ephesian church and the church today exists in a world that's dominated 
absolutely dominated by self-indulgence. Many of the Ephesian Christians had probably at one time indulged the passions of their flesh. Before Christ saved them, they lived for themselves. You see, their first thought was not, I wonder how I can serve the Lord today, or I wonder how I can please the Lord today, but rather, what can I do to indulge and fulfill my passions that I have today? But Paul, he instructs us that we are to die to our sinful passions, and he instructs us to put away lying, as we saw in chapter 4, and put away stealing. And now he says, you are to put off your old self, and you are to put away drunkenness. Why? Why can't we do that? Well, because drunkenness leads to other sins, because it makes a person lose control. And the will of the Lord for us is to avoid anything that would lead us to the losing of our, of, to the loss of self-control. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 5, and, and there we read about how the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And so, the Holy Spirit, who fills our lives as followers of Jesus, makes us self-controlled and filled with a deep sense of joy. The Spirit makes you like Christ, who is our ultimate model of self-control. You see, the life that is pleasing to God is not a life that is self-indulged, but a life that is self-controlled. And a life that's lived under controlling, gracious boundaries that our Heavenly Father has so graciously and wisely given to us. This leads us to number three. Walking in wisdom includes being filled by the Spirit. Walking in wisdom includes being filled by the Spirit. Look at verse 18. Paul says, be filled by the Spirit. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) To be filled by the Spirit. How is one filled by the Spirit? And how do I know if I'm being filled by the Spirit? Let's be real. This is an extremely confusing verse. It's a verse that has been misused and abused in fact, the significance of this verse is often misunderstood, misapplied, and mis altogether. So in order for us to understand this verse, what it means to be filled by the Spirit, we first have to understand what it doesn't mean. You see, from the moment you repented, from the moment that you believed, you received the Holy Spirit. Consider what Romans chapter 8, verse 9-10 through 10 says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. If you do not have the Spirit, then you do not belong to Christ. From the moment you repented and believed on Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. See, being baptized by the Holy Spirit is not an extra experience that we need to ask for or long for or to pursue after. But rather, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit the moment that Christ saved you. An accurate understanding of this text destroys the notion that being filled by the Spirit is a one-time emotional experience that you, that you initiate which instantly places you into some circle of spiritual maturity with special spiritual gifts. You see, this phrase is not suggesting that there are empty Christians who need to acquire something that they do not already have. 
If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is not saying be filled by the Spirit because you don't have the Spirit. That's not what he's saying here. See, when we use the word fill, we normally think of something being placed into a container that's empty, such as milk being poured into a glass, or water being filled into a bathtub, or or gasoline being pumped into a tank. However, this is an inaccurate interpretation of the verb that is translated as be filled in our text. Rather, this word carries with it three ideas. Pressure, permeation, and domination. I'm going to explain each one of these. Consider first pressure. Consider how a, a, the sails on a boat require the wind for the boat to move across the water. In the same way, the Holy Spirit provides the thrust to move the believer down the pathway of obedience. In other words, you will not be motivated to live a life that matches that of Christ Jesus by your own will and by your own desires. You just won't. You need the Holy Spirit to carry you in the proper direction. In order to live the life of a follower of Jesus, to live like Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes our desires and changes our passions and and He pushes us along this path of obedience. Consider also permeation and think about how when you, uh, you, I'm I'm getting older so I have to use this more often, but think about Alka-Seltzer, all right? (laughs) Alka-Seltzer, you drop two tablets in in a glass of water and the tablets instantly begin to fizzle and dissolve. Once dissolved, the water is permeated with the distinct flavor of Alka-Seltzer. In a similar sense, God wants the Holy Spirit to permeate and flavor our lives so when we're around others, they will know for certain that we possess the Spirit of God. Finally, consider this word domination or this idea of total control. You see, in our spiritual lives, we are, to, are commanded to yield Total control to the Spirit of God, which means that every emotion, every thought, every action is under His direction. So if being filled by the Spirit means pressure and permeation and domination, then what can you expect to happen in your life as a direct result? Well, Paul gives us three evidences. Two of which we're going to work through this morning. The third one will begin our, our text for next Sunday. Look back at verse 19 and take note of these two evidences of being filled by the Spirit. What does it look like for us? How can we measure whether or not we are filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are the two evidences? Well, the first evidence is in how we speak and how we sing. How we speak and how we sing. We are to speak to one another, Paul says, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, he's not suggesting that all of a sudden we're in a musical. (laughs) In fact, um, if you know me, I'm not a fan of musicals because they are either a really bad movie or just a poor concert. There's just in between. All right? And this is not, (laughs) like, honestly, that's how I view those. It's just, let's do one or the other, okay, guys? Concert or movie, let's pick one. Um, that's not what Paul's telling us to do. We're not invited to be in a musical. But 
what he's pointing to is the horizontal nature and implication of our worship. Meaning that when we gather to worship God, as we sing, we are not only singing to God, but there is a horizontal dimension of our corporate time of worship in which we are coming together to do the work of God. This is not work happening here and people um, out here um, just being a part, like participating in a sense of, of receiving. But this is a time in which we come together and do the work of God together. We are ministering to one another. And this is why the chairs at mission are in a slight curve so that we can see people. Think about this. As you look across and you're in small group with somebody and you know that their life is going through just a difficult season, yet they're singing the truths of the Gospel passionately. And as you're going through a tough time, and you see how they are able to sing out to God be even in the midst of a horrible situation. They are proclaiming the truth that God is good. And they are proclaiming that, we are, that God is the one in which deserves all of our praise. How encouraging is that for one another? As we look across and know, man, they should be like miserable right now, but look at how they are worshiping God. What does that do to our hearts? That encourages us and it leads us to worship God more passionately. And in truth, this is why we sing the songs we do. One of the biggest questions I get, especially in our members' classes, is what in the world? Like, what are the songs that we sing? I've never heard these songs before. Why aren't we singing whatever on SOS? Well, because there's just better songs that are more accurate to God's Word. And whenever I'm preaching, I'm putting words in your ears. But whenever I'm leading you in worship, I'm putting words in your mouth. And those are the words in which we are singing and ministering to one another. Shouldn't we want those to be more accurate to Scripture? And that's why we do that. Because there's intention behind this. This is not just a time in which we are checking off a box. This is not a time in which we are putting on an experience or a concert. This is a time when the people of God are coming together to do the work of God. And so we want to be as accurate to the text as we can. So worship is horizontal. But worship is also vertical. He says that we are to make music to the Lord with our hearts. Friends, a Spirit-filled church is a church that sings. A Spirit-filled person sings. I don't know what it is, and I can't explain it, and I don't understand it. There's something that happens when you sing. Something happens to your heart. We were in the car the other day, headed to school. I was dropping off two of my kids. And we're in car line, and everybody was in a bad mood, all three of us. We were cranky, we were in a bad mood, kids were arguing. And I just started singing, Rock of Ages, blurting it out, embarrassing my kids, and they started joining in. And by the time they got out of the car, some, God had done something in our hearts. Our posture had changed as the truths of God's Word were now being spoken in that car. And they left and it, things were changed. I don't understand it. I don't know. But something, it, there's something powerful about singing. And friends, if we're going to be a church, mission church, that is filled by the Spirit, we need to be a church that sings the truths of God's Word. See, this is not, worship is not about manipulation, emotional manipulation. It's not an experience. It's not formulaic or ritualistic either. But it's a true expression from the heart 
for our love for God. Of our love for God. And when we sing, we are singing to the Lord. We're honoring Him in our worship. He is the audience. He is the object of our praise. And as a result, we are filled with His Spirit in our worship. The second evidence of a life filled by the Spirit is seen in how we give thanks. And how we give thanks. Look back at verse 20. It says, Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit-filled life is evidenced not by cynicism, not by complaining, but it's evidenced by thankfulness. Let's be honest, life is tough. Life is difficult, to say the least. Many of us here this morning have stories of difficulty and tragedy and troubles. How can Paul say to us, You need to be thankful for everything and be thankful always. Is he out of his mind? Sounds a little bit realistic if we're honest. Unrealistic. Are we really to give thanks even when the wheels of our lives seem to be falling off? Yes. Yes, we are. Remember, Paul is writing this instruction as he's chained to a Roman officer in a Roman prison. Like This is when he's penning these words. He was still able to write verse 20 and to instruct us to join him in giving thanks always for everything. This is the conviction of a person who is persuaded that God is absolutely good and that our circumstances do not change who God is. We might be thanking God through tears and discouragement, but it will be all the more real as a result. And this is one of the remarkable evidences of being filled by the Spirit, is being able to thank God even in the midst of difficulty. And friend, that's why we need the church. That's why we need to gather together and worship together. That's why we need the horizontal implication and application of our worship. You see, you're never going to rise to giving thanks always and for everything until we are absolutely convinced of the goodness of God. We might be, like I said, going through difficulty, but when we have an understanding of who God is based upon who He says He is in His Word, it radically changes our posture and our, and our understanding of our circumstances. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life requires us to walk in the wisdom of God. The third that we're going to discuss next week but you could kind of make a note because it applies to this. The third evidence of a Spirit-filled person is through submission. Now, we're going to discuss that in more detail because the beginning of that explains the rest of the next passage of text. But that is an evidence. But, the Christian life does require us to walk in wisdom. Have no doubt that the world is going to be constantly working to draw you, draw you away from your devotion to Christ. Draw you away from walking in the ways of wisdom. Therefore, Paul is telling us, be careful. Be diligent. Walk the straight and narrow path. The path that leads to life. And this is the good news. That Jesus Himself is the very wisdom of God personified. And in Christ, you and I have the wisdom of God. And as we listen to God's Word and obey God's Word, as we love Jesus and live like Jesus, you and I, we will grow in wisdom. A wisdom that will result in worship and thankfulness to God in all things and for everything and always. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word and the instruction that You've given to us. 
Thank You for equipping us with what we need to live like Your Son. I pray, God, that we would leave here equipped to walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom for our good and for Your glory and for the good of those around us. I pray, Lord, that we would leave here with intention not to waste our days, but to live redeeming the time for You as we are intentional about developing our disciplines, as we are intentional to share the Gospel with our neighbors, and ultimately as we are intentional just to worship and and rest in You, God. Lord, we love You and we thank You. We give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.